Today's message, as I mentioned, is the second part to this short two-part series on the purpose and means of obedience. Last week we talked about the purpose, we talked about why we obey, and this week we're going to talk about how we are to obey. Peter gets really specific here, he gets to some real practical things here for us to do, and so let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. We will read through the, the verses. We're going to read through verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to do a quick recap of what we went over last week. And then we will get into the verses for today. So 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In your bulletin, you'll find your simple two-part outline. The first point is know and understand why. And the second part is know and understand how. Last week we covered the why. We talked about the importance of knowing why the Bible says what it says. Why we are to obey. It gives us a purpose. It gives us motivation. It drives us to do what we know we should do. We looked at three reasons Peter gave as to why we should obey. The first one we looked at, why number one we looked at was Christ suffered for us. Why do we obey? Because Christ suffered for us in that first verse there. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So because the King of the universe came down, because He lived a perfect life on this earth and sacrificed and died for us, we ought to live with the same mentality. We ought to be willing to sacrifice any and everything to obey God. We should out of love obey all that Christ commands us to do because He died for our example and for our salvation. Why number two we talked about was there's no time to live like unbelievers. And we saw that in 1 Peter 2-3 through where Peter says that the time for living like an unbeliever is in the past. We looked at the Greek in in that verse, 
And there were three words with a perfect tense indicating that the time for living like a Gentile, an unbeliever, was in the past and it is done and over. Just like I had a specific math class last semester, that time is done and over with. I would never return to that class. At that time, it would be very awkward, not only for me, but for the teacher. But that's the way it is for us as we return and we do things that unbelievers do. It's out of place. We also took a little bit of time to stop and see how idolatry, uh, one of the things that Peter had in that list, has crept into the church. We talked about the specific idolatry of self-idolatry and the idolatry of the family that often creeps into our lives. We talked about how even not going to a church event because of what the event is or maybe you don't go because of who's speaking or what the topic is, uh, that is all selfishness. It's self-idolatry. It's putting self above Christ and the edification of the saints and learning more about our Lord. We talked about the tendency we have to idolize children, grandchildren, especially because of the pressure that the culture puts on us. And we talked specifically about how that has been a detriment to teaching our children and grandchildren to worship Yahweh. That Yahweh is the center of our lives and not our children and grandchildren. We talked about the most important thing parents and grandparents can do for their grandchildren is not spoil them, but teach them that Yahweh is the center of the universe. Yahweh is and should be the object of our worship. Why number three that we talked about was we only have one life to live. We saw this in 1 Peter 4, 6, where he said, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter was reminding his audience of the eternal glory that they will receive in heaven with Yahweh. And when we keep in mind the reality of an eternal life awaiting us, the glory that we will have in heaven, sharing with our Lord, that brings to light the brevity of this life. This life is nothing compared to eternity. And we talked about the difference between now and eternity with God in heaven. And the difference is now we have the opportunity to evangelize. Now we have the opportunity to build the church. Now is not the time to live for self. Now is the time, the only time we have to evangelize and build the church. So we must fully devote ourselves to that. We only have one life to live here on this earth, so let's not waste it on ourselves like Solomon did, but fear and obey the Lord in all that He asks us to do. So those are the three reasons we looked at last week. Now, if you would permit me, I'm going to add one more of those, one more reason to that list before we move on. Why number four, which is in the verses that we're getting into today, the beginning of verse seven, says, The end of all things is at hand. So why number four? The end is near. The end of all things is at hand. The word end there is not referring to necessarily the end of time, but rather it has the meaning of culmination and fulfillment. This is referring to the culmination of Christ's rapture, return, and reign, and then our eternal reign with Him. 
the word translated at hand there, it just means imminent. At any moment. At any moment, the end will be upon us. The return of Christ will be upon us. And this would bring to mind what Peter has already mentioned regarding the end. We just read that what the Gentiles malign us for, they will be judged in the end. Peter references judgment in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, the Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. That means God does not show favoritism whatsoever. We're all equal. We're all on equal ground. And if there was ever a good example of this, it would be Moses. Moses was a faithful servant of God. Faithful beyond any servant we find in the Old Testament. Yet Moses was judged and he received the same sentence that the rest of unbelieving Israel did. When Moses did not believe God, he disobeyed Him by striking the rock instead of speaking to it. He received the same sentence of not being allowed into the promised land as the rest of hard-hearted Israel. As many of us read that, we think, man, couldn't God just have cut Moses a little bit of slack? It was one mistake. But look, if God did not show partiality to Moses, if he did not favor Moses in any way, we can be certain that he will not show us any favoritism. God judges impartially. Peter also mentions God as judge in chapter 2, verse 23, which we looked at last week, that he, that is Jesus, did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's an equal standard. God judges justly. There's an equal standard that everyone will be judged by, and that is perfection. Be perfect as I am perfect, Jesus said. Do you measure up? Are you perfect in every way? None of us are. One day we will all stand before the throne of God to give an answer for our lives. And only those, as Spurgeon says, only those who plead the blood of Christ will receive mercy. All those who stand before God pleading their own merit, their own works, they will be condemned for all eternity. But those who have been regenerated by God and have repented of their sins and trusted in the blood of Christ, they will enter eternal glory, escaping punishment. But even those who are saved, those who have been regenerated, put their faith in Christ, they will have their works examined and judged. Let's real briefly look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul makes the judgment of believers very clear. And this is what should be on our minds as we look towards the end that Peter mentions here. The end of all things is at hand. This is what we need to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become 
manifest or made known, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In the end, believers and unbelievers will be separated, unbelievers to eternal condemnation, and believers go on to have their works examined. For believers, there is no punishment or condemnation whatsoever, but everything you have spent your life doing is laid bare and put through the fire. What was glorifying to God will stand through the fire, and all else will be burned up with no harm befalling the person. Paul goes on to say in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. So all of our works, our outward works, are put through the fire Our purposes, the purposes of our heart will be brought to light and each one will receive his commendation from God for those things. And I don't know about you, but that is a sobering thought. To have all the purposes of my heart brought to light, exposed, and put through the fire. That is a sobering thought. Not to receive condemnation, but to receive commendation for how we have been faithful to God in this life. That is a sobering thought that our lives will be examined and our works put through the fire. But it is also a grace of God because our bad, evil works do not count against us because we have trusted in Christ and yet God is faithful and He rewards us for what we have been faithful in. None of our evil deeds count against us, but God rewards us for what we've been faithful in. That is what Peter wants us to be thinking about as he goes into these next verses. He wants us to be thinking that the end is imminent. The end is at hand. So as we go into this next section, keep all of those reasons why in mind. Christ suffered for you. There's no time to live like unbelievers. You only have one life to live in this life. The end is imminent. The end is near. So don't waste it. That brings us to your second point in the outline there. Know and understand how. Know and understand how we are to obey. Last week, as I mentioned, we just went over talking about the importance of knowing why. That motivates us, that drives us to do what God has commanded us to do. But we also have to know how. The how is just as important as knowing why. We use teaching a young driver as our example for the importance of knowing why, especially with regard to the speed limit. If you fail to teach your young driver why he should obey the speed limit, chances are they're not going to obey the speed limit. You can also teach your young driver why to follow the rules of driving, but if you don't tell them how to operate the vehicle, then none of that really matters. 
Knowing how is just as important as knowing why. And for this, we're going to look at an example in the Old Testament. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. Romans 2.15 says that the law of God is written on the heart of every man. That is to say, each of us knows in our heart of hearts what is morally right or wrong, even without the specifics of the Word of God. But even that, that's in a general sense of knowing what is right and wrong. We see this in, in the kings of Judah especially. There were several kings of Judah who were assessed as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They tore down places of idol worship. But many of those kings just reformed Judah a little bit. Some of them just tore down some of the places of idol worship and not all of them. They restored Some of them restored devotion to Yahweh, but that's where it ended. In 2 Kings 22, we see why those kings did not go far enough in their reform. In 2 Kings 22, we see Josiah come to the throne, and like the other godly kings before him, he has a concern for the temple of the Lord. He commands that the temple be repaired, and while the temple is being repaired, Hilkiah the high priest found the book of the law. It had been lost. Shaphan, the secretary, was given the book by Hilkiah, so he read the book of the law, that is Genesis to Deuteronomy, the whole thing to King Josiah. And in chapter 22, verse 11, we see Josiah's response to reading how Israel was supposed to be obeying God. So 2 Kings 22, starting in verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah was grieved because he saw the sinful state of Judah up against the perfect holy standard God had set for them. He knew right away how far they had fallen from serving Yahweh. In all of Kings, first and second Kings as we know it, this is the first mention. These chapters are the first mention of anyone reading the book of the law. According to Deuteronomy 17.18, long before there was a king in Israel, Moses decreed that each king was supposed to write his own copy of the law. He was supposed to copy the book of the law himself and have his own copy. But here we see that Judah had lost the book. It had gotten buried in the temple. We don't know how long exactly they went without reading the book of the law. But I don't know why the author of Kings would leave it out the entire time just to bring it up at the end if it had been being read that whole time. If it was that whole time, that was a span of over 400 years that the people of Israel went without reading the book of the law. Because they lost the book, did not care to read it. There were several kings who desired to follow the Lord 
who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but there was no clarity as to how that was to be done. Their devotion to Yahweh only went as far as their conscience pressed them. Josiah, though, he was armed with the book of the law. He was armed with all of the commands that God had given them, and now he knew what needed to be done. And so he took up his rightful place of leadership, and this is what he did in all of Israel because he knew what God demanded of them. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Beyond any king before him, Josiah reformed the nation of Israel to follow Yahweh not just to keep from worshiping other idols as many of the kings before him, but he was armed with the word of God in knowing how specifically to be devoted to Yahweh, what they were specifically to do, not just not to do, but to do. Being armed with the book of the law, Josiah specifically reinstated the Passover, which was a specific of how Israel was to remember all that God had done and worship him. And note that it says that such a Passover was not observed since before the time of the judges. Centuries and centuries went by with the book of the law just gathering dust somewhere. Knowing how to worship Yahweh is just as important as knowing why. Both are crucial elements of the Christian life. This is why you cannot... Continue to grow in your walk if your Bible just collects dust on your shelf. This is why we gather here week after week to hear sermons preached on God's Word. Sometimes we've heard several sermons on the same verses, on the same chapters, but we gather week after week so we remember what God has said, so we do not forget. We have to do this constantly, continually reading His Word and hearing it being taught so that we remember how we are to worship Him. Otherwise, like Israel, we will be helpless in this fight against becoming like the world and worshiping what the world worships. So let's turn our attention back to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 7. Once again, today's message is to get really practical, how we are to obey God specifically. And Peter tells us three areas here, three areas that we're going to be concerned with. As believers, we are, number one, we are to be concerned with personal holiness. Concern yourself with personal holiness. The second area is concern yourself with reciprocal love. 
And then he tells us to concern yourself with mutual service. So subpoint one underneath, no one understand how is concern yourself with personal holiness. First Peter four seven says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. So first Peter tells us here to be self controlled. Self control refers to the personal refrain or restraint from doing what we are commanded not to do. When it speaks of discipline in the Bible, where we're to have discipline, that is to do what we know we should do. That's discipline. Self-control is not doing what we know we should not do. We are to have self-control and not do what Peter tells us not to do. And because he doesn't really go on to state anything specifically, I think this refers back to what we talked about last week with regard to living like unbelievers in sensuality, passions, idolatry, and the like. He's commanding us to have self-control to keep ourselves from living like the Gentiles. As he already said, there's no more time appointed by God to live like the Gentiles. Therefore, have self-control and not do what we are commanded to not do. We fleshed out some specifics regarding idolatry last week, so I don't want to delve into that issue anymore, but just keep that in mind in light of last week's sermon and what we've gone over is we have to exercise self-control. It's an active thing. Second, in this category of personal holiness, Peter says to be sober-minded. Three times in the book of 1 Peter alone, Peter uses this phrase, sober-minded. And four other times he uses similar phrases for having a certain state of mind. So obviously this is important if Peter mentions it so often. This sober-mindedness is having an accurate assessment of oneself and the world around us. It's looking at the world and the culture and the self in such a way that we are able to make wise and clear conclusions with regard to how we are to live in it. Every culture changes with every new generation, and it seems like every year nowadays, the culture changes so much that we must constantly have a clear head upon us to know how to live righteously in the current age. We have to step back, take time to assess it. We have to think deeply about the way we are affected by it so we can walk wisely. This is impossible if we do not have an accurate assessment of ourselves. If we're proud, we think we can handle more than we can. We have to have an accurate assessment of ourselves and the world around us. I talked about this very thing in more depth in the sermon I preached from 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, because I did a fuller exposition then, I'm just going to summarize as I did in that sermon We read a quote from John MacArthur in which he said, being sober-minded is, and I quote, being in charge of one's priority, priorities, and balancing one's life so as not to be subject to the controlling and corrupting influences of the flesh's allurements. Being in charge of one's priorities and balancing one's life in order to keep from being drawn away by the world. 
We're to step back. We're to look at the culture like we did last week with regard to idolatry and assess how it affects us. And we are to organize our lives in such a way that we can walk in the world we live in unaffected by it as much as possible. So we must concern ourselves with personal holiness and be self-controlled to keep from doing what we know we should not do. We also have to be sober-minded, proactive to see how the world affects us and we have to order our life appropriately. The second category for how we are to obey, we are to concern ourselves with reciprocal love. And if that word reciprocal confuses you or you don't know what it means, I'm a contractor by trade and I think of a reciprocating saw. It's the saw where the blade goes back and forth. It's just this back and forth. Okay, So when Peter says, keep loving one another, that's to be reciprocal. That's to be back and forth between all of us. It's not to be one-sided. You'll notice we already read the next section, but Peter distinguishes between the differing gifts, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts that people have been given. He does not do that here. He just gives a blanket statement that we are to love one another. We are to show hospitality to one another. You don't get to say that you don't have the spiritual gift of love, so you don't have to love. I know many of us would like to do that. You don't get to say that you don't have the spiritual gift of hospitality, so you don't have to show hospitality. All of these things here are things that God commands us to do, that we are to do back and forth to one another. So the first thing that Peter mentions there is keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. The word for love there is the Greek word that we all know, agape. And we could spend all day fleshing out the meaning and the implications of this word. But for our limited time today, I just want to clarify that this love is characterized by volition. It's characterized by an act of the will. This type of love is never just a feeling or an emotion that wells up within us but it is, an, it is evidenced by outward action. And it is also unmerited and unearned. Like when we were still enemies of God, He loved us and sent His Son to die in our place. This was an unmerited, unearned love, which was only love because it resulted in action we could not say that God loved us if He'd never acted. So this love is characterized by volition, by an act of the will, and it is unmerited. We are called to love one another in the same way. Acting in a sacrificial way to love one another as Christ did. We are to love one another in this way, whether people deserve it or not. None of us deserve it, and we have to keep that in mind. We don't love people based on whether they deserve it or not. No one deserved the love of God, and no, none of us really deserves the love of another. But we do love because Christ first loved us. The word earnestly there in the Greek is the word ektenes. And it has the basic idea of endurance, 
but more specifically, it means to stretch and to strain to maximum capacity. Like a runner straining to finish a marathon, or a horse stretched to the max as he runs a race at full speed. We are to love one another sacrificially and unconditionally, and we are to stretch ourselves to the max, Peter says here, to endure in love until the end. Peter here recognizes the difficulty it is to love one another, and that's why he uses this word earnestly. He says, strain yourself to love one another. Stretch yourself to the max to love one another. And we all know that some people stretch us more than others. These one another commands are not easy. And it's recognized right away here when Peter tells us that we have to strain ourselves to love. Peter goes on to say, love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The idea here of love covering a multitude of sins should not be thought of as sins getting swept under the rug, never to be dealt with. If someone has issues of repeating sins, those things must be confronted and dealt with. But that's not what this is referring to here. This is referring to, for example, if someone is short with you on a Sunday morning or they're rude to you. If someone does that to me on a Sunday morning, I'm not going to stop and confront that person, telling them that they have wronged me and that they need to repent. I'm just going to let love cover over those things and move on. I may ask some questions of that person because I care about them and I want to get to the heart of the issue, but my focus is never going to be on myself or what that person did to me, but on their spiritual well-being. There's a lot of opportunity for this, especially among spouses, among family, as we tend to be short and impatient with those that we're closest to. We have to practice this among those we're closest to so that we can be better about practicing it within the church towards others. Now, if someone makes a habit of rude or impatient behavior toward people, then you would need to confront them and call them to repentance. But for the most part, for those isolated instances where someone's just rude or unkind and it's just a one-time thing, just let love cover over, let it go by. But if you are that person, maybe you were unkind towards someone, you spoke rudely to them, you have a headache, you have a bad day, whatever it might be, if that's you, don't ever take that love for granted. Maybe you have a really forgiving spouse and you take advantage of that. You should never just let that go by. As we recognize our own sin, we must confess our sin and seek forgiveness. Even if that person has just covered over the offense with love, they're not going to hold it against us. Don't take that for granted. Make it a joy for them to do that by returning to them and seeking forgiveness confessing your sin to them, ensuring that that transaction has taken place. We don't want to ever assume forgiveness. As I mentioned, this is not an excuse for avoiding confrontation with people over sin. We have to confront sin as we see it happening 
especially in those we see a repetitive pattern. But for those isolated instances, Peter here says, just let love cover over. Love one another. Even those things are going to be hard. Earnestly love one another and let love cover over sin. And we could talk about this broad command to love one another for weeks because there's so many Scripture references and implications. But we're only going to talk about the one specific way that Peter challenges us to love one another in verse 9. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The specific act of love that Peter tells his listeners to perform is the act of hospitality. Hospitality is literally the combination of the word love, philos, where we get the word Philadelphia from, brotherly love. It's this word philos and the word for stranger. So the love of strangers. But it just means to host someone. To be hospitable is just to host someone. Many times that can be strangers. And what hospitality has looked like over the centuries has changed, but the principles stay the same. It is having a love for guests, and all throughout history, only in our recent day and age has this changed, all throughout history has this act of hospitality been assumed that you would host people in your own home. Contrary to what was taught here years ago, you cannot claim to be hospitable when the extent of your hospitality is putting people up in a hotel. There is so much more to hospitality than pragmatically providing a roof over someone. There are certain occasions where you want to put somebody up in a hotel, that's appropriate, but that's not the norm for all of us. We cannot personally claim to be hospitable if we do not personally host people. We are all here commanded to be hospitable. This isn't a special gift that only those who have the spiritual gift of hospitality are obligated to do. Unqualified here, Peter tells his listeners to show love by being hospitable to one another. This also does not just mean hosting people to stay for long periods of time. You can have someone over for coffee. You can have someone over just to visit. Just a simple visit, a cup of coffee, a meal. That's what it's referring to. But it also includes, even as we were blessed by, Travis and Melinda connected us with a couple in California who were just so gracious. They did this so well. They hosted us for the week. They're so gracious. And I was just blown away by the fact that right before we got there, they had had someone there for a week before us. And right after we were leaving, she was going to paint the bedroom. She was going to repaint the bedroom in about eight hours because they had more guests coming in in a couple days. Just blew me away at their hospitality. In our day and age, hosting someone for coffee, dessert, or a meal is a big deal. Our world knows nothing of this. For Christians, though, this should be a regular a practice among us. We ought to all be regularly hosting people as an act of love, according to Peter. And I know, I know you're all busy, 
We're all busy, but we all must make time to obey this command. There are so many excuses that we come up with for why not to have people over. So many excuses. I couldn't begin to um, expose all of the ones I've used. You all, I do, we carve time out of our week to come to church. We carve time out of our week to make room for other things. And we have to carve time out of our week. We have to cut other things out of our week to make time for hosting people, to have some people over. Kayla and I determined about a year and a half, two years ago, that we were going to start having more people over. We made a plan to have, I think it was one couple over each month or another family. But the key to that is we sat down and we said, okay, this is what we're going to do. If you come up with a plan, there's a chance that you can stick to it. But if you just have this vague idea, this vague notion that you're going to try and have more people over, it's probably never going to happen. And look, the blessings that you will reap as you sacrifice time to do this are untold. I am by nature an antisocial person. I like time to myself. But I cannot begin to tell you how much I have been blessed by the relationships that we have built this last couple of years as we have had people over regularly. And if I had it all to do over again, I would only want to try and carve out more time to have more people over. This time that you spend with one another, especially those among believers here, like-minded people, it will give you a relational foundation to confess struggles, seek advice, get somebody else's perspective, confess sin, receive counsel, These times that we have had people over to share a meal with, they've given us those relational foundations to do that with them. To generate deep relationships among other believers here that has only aided in our sanctification. Those people that we have had over, especially the ones that we've had over several times, we've just generated this deep bond as we've shared meals together, as we've spent time together. And this, this bond of sharing that's created, sharing a meal, it's actually pretty universally recognized. In Arab societies, they refer to those that they have in their home and share bread with as brothers of the bread. In their minds, they, be, they become a sort of family. There are records even in the Arab world of captives who refused to eat the food of their captors that their captors provided them because if they ate this food that they provided them, they would forfeit their right of revenge upon them. One man even refused to exact punishment on a thief who stole his camels because the thief drank from his milk pail before stealing the camels. Thus it created a close bond between them in their minds. While these things might seem silly to us, it does reveal a truth found in hospitality that those who share over a meal together, they forge a close bond with one another. It's not some abstract covenant that it became to the Arabs. But when we eat together and spend time together, 
we will grow close to one another just as your family does as you sit down to dinner every night. Hospitality is a dying art in our country today, and we need to rekindle it, especially in our church. And I even think it's harder to practice hospitality in Colorado, in our part of the country. Uh, We were talking, my wife and I, as we came back from California, we were talking with Wes and Kate, and Wes actually, Wes Doney made this observation, but I think it's very accurate. He made the observation that Coloradoans, obviously we like our space. Historically, that's why we're here. We went west to get out, away from everybody. That's why we're here. But Coloradoans, there's this cultural undertone of, you let me have my space and I'll let you have your space. You stay over there and I'll stay over here. You mind your own business and I'll mind mine. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that's the state of our culture, and I think that's crept into the church a little bit. As a church, though, we are called to be completely different from the culture around us. We cannot reflect the habits of the society's ability to be hospitable. We must be wholly set apart. We have to reflect what Peter says in the Word of God here to do, and that is be hospitable. We have to build a biblical culture here at Grace. And I think that's a great way to, uh, one way to do that is to be hospitable. So we're commanded to host one another. This is an act of love which will bind us together. Forge us together as we go through life. And as I already mentioned, the blessings are untold so whatever it is that's holding you back from showing hospitality from inviting somebody over and trust that to god and move forward sit down with your wife or if you're single just commit to it yourself to come up with a plan i know everybody's situation is different i could not begin to Say, this is what you should do. This is what your plan should be because everybody's life is different. Everybody's in a different situation. So just sit down and come up with a plan yourself for how you're going to obey this command. But whatever's holding you back, entrust that to God. Young and old alike, across generation, open your home to people and invite them in. Not only are we called to do this, with one another in the church, as Peter says. But at the heart of the word is that love for those that we don't know, love for strangers. Many times in the time of Peter here, strangers were taken in and shown hospitality by those in the church because they had an evangelistic purpose in mind. Now, in our society, we don't have a whole lot of people traveling through Greeley. I don't know about you, but I doubt there's a whole lot of people traveling through Greeley knocking on your door asking to spend the night. And quite frankly, if they did, we probably wouldn't let them in, right? It is a different world. So how do we practice hospitality to those we don't know or don't know well? And I think the obvious answer to that is your neighbors. I don't know about you, but many of my neighbors are strangers to me. I don't know them like I should. And quite frankly, it's because of the same reasons we don't host people the way we should. I don't make a plan to do that. 
I think I've spent the last 10 years, I, my wife and I, we've been in that house for nine years now, and we've, I think I've spent the last nine years just thinking, I'll, when the opportunity presents itself, I'll talk to my neighbor. And unfortunately, I'm a slow learner, and it's taken me nine years to figure out that hasn't, ha- that hasn't worked. I don't know my neighbors the way I should, but we as believers, as we practice among one another, we also need to reach out to those around us, the strangers around us, and show them hospitality as well. And I can only imagine that it will uh, be a shock to many of your neighbors if you invite them over because that just does not happen anymore. So, we are to have a deep concern for our personal holiness. We are to have a deep concern to earnestly love one another, specifically by way of hospitality. And finally, concern yourself with mutual service. 1 Peter 4, 10-11a says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So as each has received a gift, each and every believer has been given a gift to use to serve the body of Christ. If you're a member, specifically a member here, and you're not serving in any way, shape, or form, then you are missing out, for one. You are missing out on the joys, but you're also not being a good steward with what God has given you. The parable Jesus told of the talents where one of the slaves, he did not use what God had given him, he buried it in the dirt. And that's the picture we have in our minds of stewardship with gifts that God has given us. We need to be exercising the gift that God has given us. Whatever that is for you, If you're not doing anything, you need to exercise that. Service is not an obligation. Service is a privilege. And if you are not serving, as I already mentioned, you are missing out. And for those of you that helped specifically with our last women's conference, you know the joy and the privilege it is to serve alongside one another the joy that it is, the encouragement that it is. I still have a picture in my head of Brad throwing clean pots across the kitchen to, to Bryce to catch them, to dry them, and put them away. There, there, was, there was a lot of joy in that kitchen just washing dishes. It's not an obligation, it's a privilege. But I must commend all of you here at Grace Church, because there are so many people at this church that serve. You know, there's a saying at most churches that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, but I am so encouraged as I look around this church and see all the different people serving. I don't know what the ratio is, but it is much higher than 20% of the people doing a lot of the work around here. Especially as I'm even transitioning out of this position, as Josh is transitioning in, I've had so many people stepping up willing to take more responsibility beyond what they're already doing, serve more, because they have learned, they've come to understand the joy that it is to serve. 
and that what we do to build the church is really all that matters in life. It's so encouraging to see so many people serving and so many people always willing to do more. Speaking of God's varied grace, Peter says in verse 11, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So Peter here distinguishes between two categories of gifts, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. The point here is not necessarily to you know, point out all the different ways that we can serve, but he points out the more public area of service and those who serve in the background. And what Peter is saying here is, regardless of what your gift is, just use it. Whether you're gifted with speaking, you're up here in the position I am, or you're in the sound booth up there where no one ever sees you, whatever it is, serve. Do it faithfully. All of those positions are important. I can't serve up here without those guys up there doing their job. We're all mutually important. Not one person is more important than the other. We all need to jump in and do our part. But as I already mentioned, I must commend you all for your excellency in this matter. I encourage you to keep serving all the more so that as I hear reports, as I call back to talk to Travis and hear reports of the church, I only hear of your increased service and love for one another. So Peter commends us to first obey having a concern for personal holiness, then loving one another, and lastly be concerned through mutual service. And then Peter ends the section by giving us one final exhortation to obedience. And that is to bring God the glory. 1 Peter 4.11, the end of that. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our chief goal in life is to bring God glory. To glorify Him in all things and enjoy Him. And Peter ends here where he started this section with a mention of God being glorified through Jesus Christ. Christ suffered to the glory of God and therefore we ought to glorify God in everything we do. So I commend you today to go from here with a deep concern for your personal holiness. Have a deep concern to love one another back and forth. And continue to be concerned in your mutual service to one another. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We praise You that You have told us exactly how You want us to serve You. So many Scriptures over and over of the same exhortations, the same commands, just to make sure that we get it. Because we tend to be so thick-headed 
and stubborn in our ways, that we have to constantly be in your word. We have to constantly hear your word preached on how you want us to live in order that we can continue to glorify you in all that we do. Lord, I just pray that as this is the last uh, sermon I'll be preaching here until we leave, I just pray for this church that you put your protective hand over it, that you continue to elevate your word in it, continue to hold the leadership, uphold them in righteousness so that they remain above reproach and remain holding your concerns for your church in high regard. That their concern is always for you. That their fear is always upon you and not upon man. And I just pray that this church continues to increase in its faithful service. That it continues to grow in hospitality towards one another and that they would continue to grow in personal holiness concerned for their own souls and each other. Pray all these things.